you know, you went from Reddit to Microsoft to wait. Uh, yeah, Netflix. After. Sorry, Reddit to Netflix to Microsoft to Stripe. Like, what do people see in you that like? Why do? You, <laughs> why are people hiring you? <laughs> uh, I guess that's a stupid white guy failing up. I think is the answer to your question. No. Um, I mean, it might be. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna. You can talk. You know, you can talk to like each one a little bit individually. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Welcome, Front of Masters community. Hey, I'm Mark Urbanski, CEO of Front of Masters, and today is a very exciting day because we're launching the podcast. Y'all have asked for this for a while, a way to get to know the instructors behind the scenes. A lot of them have had incredible careers, and today is kicking it off with none other than Brian Holt, one of the top Front of Masters instructors. He's gone from Reddit to Netflix to Microsoft and beyond. And I think you're going to learn a lot from his journey as well as he's just a really fun person to talk to. So let's get right into it. Well, welcome, Brian, to the first episode of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to kick things off with some warm-up questions. Sure. Uh, the first one is, are there any special skills that you have that people wouldn't know about? That's a good question. I'm a man of many and uh, varied skills, or maybe few skills. Uh, but what does surprise people from time to time is that I speak fluent Italian. So can you give us like one Italian phrase? Uh, io voglio mangiare sempre, which is I always want to eat because ho fame, I am hungry. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, why do you know Italian? I lived there for a, a couple of years uh, between ages of 19 and 21. And then when I got back from living in Italy, I studied it in college as well. I actually am like five credits away from having a degree in Italian literature. Wow. Which is weird, right? Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> kind pretty of deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep cut from Brian Holt. Um, I thought about going back, to, but I actually have to like go back to school full time. And I'm got it. W way past trying to do that these days. Uh, I was there on a uh, religious mission, which is, you know, I grew up religious and uh, I'm not anymore. But uh, yeah, that's why I went out there. Hmm. Do you think that that experience kind of shaped you to who you are now? Most definitely. Um, several things. One, it just taught me to work hard. Like I was a, it's kind of a lazy kid growing up. Um, and I, like, I'm not exaggerating. Like I just, didn't work hard in school. Um, I was usually smart enough to, to not have to really try. Uh, and then I started a, like a year of college and I didn't do super well. So it was a good pause for me to like grow up, right? Like at 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I wasn't, you know, prepared to work hard. And then I went out, you know, and, and lived in Italy and uh, had to learn a language, had to talk to a lot of people. And that really did teach me the value of like working hard. Cause like I saw, I was like, if I work really hard, then I get good results. And if I slack off, I get terrible results. And I, like, I kind of figured out, I was like, okay, maybe I, maybe I should work hard at things. And, you know, I, I came back and I was, you know, prepared to work. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, all right. So a couple more warm up questions. Sure. You're a connoisseur of coffee, beer, and whiskey. Yes. Could you list a few of each? Sure. That you'd recommend. 
Uh, let's start with coffees. I'm a big fan of Onyx as a roaster. I'm for your birthday one year. I got yeah. you a subscription. Definitely drink all of that. Yeah, it's from Arkansas, which you know I wouldn't expect. Like I'm, I'm from Seattle, which there's a ton of great roasters in Seattle as well. Like uh, Olympia is my favorite one in, in Seattle. Um, but I still end up ordering a lot of Onyx, I, and I I've gotten several of your staff into it as well. It's definitely like bougie. Add <laughs> some bougie ass coffee. <laughs> coffee <laughs> Absolutely. Um, for beer, I live in the Mecca of beer. Like I think Seattle has some of the best beer in the country. And yes, I will fight you if you try and, uh, convince me otherwise. Um, I live next to the brewery district in Seattle, which is the highest per capita brewery to population ratio, I think in the world. Uh, so that's, uh, good for my liver, one might say. Uh, and then whiskey, I'm, I'm a big scotch fan. Um, and typically like the really smoky stuff is the stuff that I like, so... Uh, anything from Lafroig or Ardbeg is usually my jam. Nice. Yeah, so what's something absurd that you love doing? What's something absurd that I love doing? That's a good question. Um, man, I do love to snowboard. I, I haven't really picked that up in some years. Like, I grew up all doing it. I'm from Montana and Utah, so it's just something that you do. But this past season, my wife kind of came up to me and she's like, you you loved to do this. Why did, Why did you stop, right? Uh, so I did do it this season and it's what's so dumb is that I was just like heading down a groomer, just carving, having a great time. And I just kind of like caught edge and fell over. It's, you know, super normal stuff, especially when you're crappy at it like I am and uh, super messed up my shoulder. And it's, oh, no. it's still messed up. Like I have to do like physical therapy and stuff like that. So it's absurd that, you know, as at my age, I picked up this sport where you get injured a lot and then immediately got injured doing it. You'd think you would get injured like trying a trick or something. Yeah, no, I just got injured by being old, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty absurd. Yeah, I have some phantom snowboard injuries from when I was younger. It's so I was dumb. Like fourteen, but trying to do a three sixty and landing on my shoulder, fun times. Yeah, I bruised the tailbone on a, a rail once. I tried a rail exactly once, bruised my tailbone, and never tried it again. All right, so. What can you tell me about Sarah Drasner and why is she the greatest person ever? That's funny. Um, Sarah Drasner and I worked together at uh, Microsoft for some years. Uh, she is fantastic. I saw her last week, actually. She was in Seattle. Um, she's just, she's genuinely weird. And I just mean that, and I think if she heard me say that, she would know how much love I say that with, that she's just does everything according to the way that she wants to and and kills it every single time. So I think that's why she just like leans into being weird in, in like the best way. Well, that's my attempt at engagement baiting Sarah Drasner to watch the first episode of the podcast. <laughs> and get her on here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so in some of your courses, you say that Luna, your dog is a jerk. Can you explain that? I mean, how many, which ways do you want me to explain that? I think the night before I came here, she just like decided that I shouldn't be asleep anymore. And so she came up in my room and just sat on my face. She was either trying to kill me or punish me. But I was like, what the hell, dog? You're such a jerk, right? It was like, and I have like a one and a half year old, right? And so sleep is precious these days. And so when my dog wakes me up, I just want to punt her to the moon. She's cute as hell and I, I still love her. But yeah, she's a jerk. So we've worked together for a very long time now, for probably over a decade. What's something weird that you've seen me do? Yeah, how long do you have, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I mean, it could be just opening the, a can of sardines in the middle of class. That's definitely happened. There's been the, hey, look, check out this handstand I can do. I'm going to do it in the middle of class. That's definitely happened. It's probably going to happen tomorrow. Probably, uh, yeah. Um, there's been the random YouTube videos we've watched over the years, again, in the middle of class. That's also been pretty fun. Um, Man, I could just go on and on. It's with Mark, you just never know what you're going to get, right? Sometimes it's going to be serious, like, like, let's like, you know, take over the world. And sometimes it's the goofiest stuff in the world. And I'm always excited to see which one I'm going to get. Yeah, it's, it's either goofy Mark or serious Mark. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see. Last one, last on the warm up uh, the tattoos. Can you give us a, a little bit of backstory on one of your tattoos? Maybe one of your favorite ones? Sure. Uh, I, I have four tattoos, but they're all pretty large. Uh, my favorite one is certainly the most recent one here, which is on my forearm. Um, this was done by my friend's wife. Um, uh, my friend is Adam Argyle, who uh, does DevRel for Google on CSS. A lot of people know his brother, Zach Argyle. Both of them live in the Seattle area. Zach used to manage the uh, React team at Facebook, React Native team. I don't know, Reacty things. Uh, both of them are lovely people. Um, so Adam's wife, Sierra, does tattoos. And so uh, she actually did my leg first, and we kind of bonded over our love of Baroque Roman art, and particularly this one style of art called Chiaroscuro. It's another Italian one, right? Uh, when I told her that my favorite artist is Caravaggio. Um, and so we kind of got talking and she got this like, like, Hey, would you do this like Chiara Scura um, tattoo that she's always kind of wanted to do? And I really liked it. And she did an awesome job on my legs. So yeah, I just, there's not particularly a lot of meaning behind it other than I just really liked the style of art. I liked Sierra and I just, yeah, we went, went from there and I, I love the tattoo. Nice. I know Adam is, I love his CSS stuff, so he should come teach a workshop for sure. Yeah. Adam, Adam's great. I like him a bunch. Zach too. All right. So let's go to, your early career, like I've heard your dad is instrumental in your uh, kind of upbringing into computers and everything. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Jack Holt, he was a sheep herder once upon a time. Uh, his dad was a cobbler. He's from uh, Idaho, Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, and he, through a variety of things in his career, ended up at IBM and he worked in sales technical sales uh, around a product called DB2, which is still, you know, in use today. Uh, it's IBM's, like, big database uh, software. Uh, it's like Oracle kind of competitor in that space. And so we always had computers in my house. Um, my first computer in my bedroom I built with my dad. It was a 386 that ran Windows 3.1. Um, and so it was always kind of encouraged for me to mess around, uh, figure out the stuff like that. And then my eldest brother, Ben, um, he went to University of Utah to learn how to code. And he would actually make me code uh, before he would let me play video games, which I hated at the time. I remember I opened, uh, it was either The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker or Warcraft 3. It was one of the two that I was really excited about. Really great games. Yeah, and my brother made me sit down and like write C++ for two hours, which I think is against the Geneva Convention. <laughs> <laughs> Especially huh? C++. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, I mean, it's obviously set me up for a long uh, 
career in, in tech. It's funny that he doesn't even work in tech anymore. He, he works in law, works for Motorola, actually. Um, but yeah, between the two of them, they really set me up to, to, to work in the tech field. So yeah, they were huge in my career. I, w- I wouldn't be here without you, both of them. That's awesome to have a supportive family. Yeah. And you've recently had a son, do you think? Man, if I can keep my son away from tech, I think that'd be the greatest <laughs> dad in the whole world. I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I I will help him uh, understand anything that he wants to know about working in the field, but I'm really big that you let kids kind of like lead themselves to the things that they're interested in. So if he comes out and he's like, hey, I really want to like do world history, I'm like, all right, let's go full at this and figure it out, right? Yeah. Um, I'll try and encourage him to have a job that, suits his lifestyle, right? Some of those things are better left as hobbies. Um, but uh, no matter what, I'll, I'll try and get him where he wants to go. Yeah, I know my eight-year-old son, he, I, I basically just let him have access to learning tools no matter what. But recently he's gotten into Scratch and he's made like three or four video games. I'm like, oh, he's going, right. <laughs> he's, he's already gone deep. Deep into it without, and I, yeah, I've not encouraged him to do that at all. It's just something he just, you know, That's some, awesome. some of us are a little bit wired for it when we see that, okay, this is uh, something that I can do. Definitely. So, uh, so yeah, and then yeah, he's obviously big into a lot of other things like gymnastics and stuff like that. So it's, it's that's fun. awesome. Yeah, that's that's what I want from him. It's just access to what interests him right because yeah. when a kid's motivated to do something it's so much more useful than like trying to force them to do something for sure yeah. so talk to me about kind of your early career getting into like reddit like how did how, how did that, that happen out. yeah yeah so I, I left uh my first university which was byu um and i transferred to the university of utah uh, to, to continue my computer science degree. And during that process, um, I just took a job interview when, when a recruiter reached out to me and um, ended up getting this job at uh, ksl.com, which is, if you're from Utah, you'll, you'll know exactly what that is. It's like a local uh, news affiliate that has like a classified site and stuff like that. Um, so that was my first developer job. I wasn't intending to drop out of college, but I kind of did. Um, from there, I went to another company called Needle. It's my first startup. It was like 80 people. wasn't there very long because that's when I got my job at Reddit. I w- um, one of the you know vice presidents at Reddit posted a job listing. It's like, hey, do you want to do JavaScript in, in Salt Lake City? And people were in the comments bashing Salt Lake City, which is where I lived at the time. And like, I was in the comments saying, like, hey, I kind of like Salt Lake City. I like living here. And I got a message from from the VP that's just saying, like, hey, if you live here and you like it, do you want to work here? And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. Like, I wasn't even necessarily applying for it, but they reached out to me and said, like, uh, come apply. Uh, this this f- story is funny because, like, so I went in and I was like, I, I don't think I can do this. Like, I hadn't invested at my company yet. Um, and um, so... I, they're like, well, come in, bring your wife. Like, we all want to meet her. Like, there's only like five people in that office at the time. And so we went to downtown Salt Lake City. And uh, I went to the back room while to talk to the, the VP while uh, Nikki stayed out. Nikki, my wife, stayed out and talked to the other people who worked at the company. And 
he just took me in the back room. He's like, what do you want? Like, we want you. Like, what do you want to work here? And so I just like, there's like, how about you pay me this much money? And he's like, okay. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting you to say yes to that. And so he walks out and I'm still kind of upset. I was like, hey, everyone, look at our newest employee. And Nikki looks at me like, what the hell did you just do? Because she thought we were going in there to tell him no. Sure. And she was like, why, why, why are you doing this? And so anyway, I had, it took some while, a while to convince Nikki because she had not heard it read it at that point. Obviously that was huge for my career. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up at Reddit. Was, I was really young in my career. I was still like my third or fourth year in the field. Um, and they gave me like a lot of responsibility, um, which was, undo like i was not due that kind of respect at that at that point in my career but it was just necessary right and so that it's one of those things that like i have a hard time telling people to not burn out and to like work good hours and have good healthy life boundaries i still believe in those things and now i've practiced those things you know particularly because i have a family but if i hadn't have done that at that time in my life like i was doing stuff like sleeping in the office i was working all sorts of crazy hours and like, it's not that Reddit ever asked me to, it was just what was the thing that was necessary to be done. Um, and it was critical. Like I grew so, like I, I feel like I had 10 years of my career in like a year and a half, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I really struggle with that even to this day of like, what do I tell people? Uh, because it gave me a huge advantage in my career. Like I got tons of DevOps experience. I got tons of backend experience. I, like I learned how to run a team and run an organization. I learned how to like do budgeting. I learned how to be on sales calls. I learned how to do design. Like there's a bunch of stuff I learned in a really abbreviated amount of time, and but I like burned myself out for it. Like there was one point where I was like, even opening my laptop would give me like anxiety, right? So yeah, yeah all of this is very familiar to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did the same thing in my twenties. It's like I got a job at an agency that they brought me like all the coolest projects. And so of course I was going to work crazy hours and <laughs> basically sleep under the desk. And cause I got to learn so much about all these different, you know, skills and practices and, and yeah, I was doing the thing that I loved, which was coding and I wanted to become the best at it. So of course, you know, but yeah, what do you tell the younger version of yourself? Do you tell them not to do that? <laughs> I, I don't think I could. And so what I've settled on like when people ask me that these days is like, you don't have to. No, no one can make you work that much. Um, if you, for me, I was excited about it, I was working and I was leaning into it. I was with people that had a lot of camaraderie. Like still, most of my best friends, like you included, right, come from that era of my life, right? Um, so you don't have to. If it's an opportunity and you want to, go for it, right? And just be aware that like, you, you just don't have to, right? Yeah, I think the delineation I'd make there is if you can take a position where you're learning and you're in a situation where you can learn a ton by you know, taking up that opportunity to work a little bit more or whatever, as long as you're learning, I don't see any problem with that. But you know, obviously there's the young kid gets taken advantage of. That's, totally. That's not good, but the, the aspect of like the learning, I think, is what you kind of have to focus on yeah. at that part of your career. 
And like, that's the part that we should glorify, right? That's the part, like not sleeping at the office. I I kind of view that with some like shame in some capacity. Like For sure. it means I wasn't managing my time the best way I could have. The part that we should glorify is like, we learned a lot. We did a lot of really cool stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about early career and, you know, not working so much that you burn out, but making sure that you're learning a lot. Is there any other kind of advice or when you talk to somebody earlier in the career that you often give them? Yeah. For, and this is all, you know, tainted with survivorship bias and confirmation bias and all the biases that I have. Uh, so just uh, take all of my advice and, well, actually the one piece of advice that I give everyone is listen to all the advice and ignore most of it. So this, I'm including that in this, right? Um, one of them is follow your interests. Um, for me, interest is a finite resource and you can exhaust it pretty quickly. And a good example of this is uh, people will come into the industry and say like, hey, what should I learn next so that I can have like marketable skills and like so I can get a job? It's a fair question. And my advice to them is don't necessarily try and just find the, the punch list of what's popular. Go look at these things and say like, what am I like pumped about? Like what am I stoked to learn about today? Because when you have the opportunity to either sit and watch Netflix or play video games, or go skiing, or you can go learn a new skill, which is kind of work, right? Your uh, your pool of interest will dry up fairly quickly if you're not working on something that you're interested in. But if you're pumped about it, you're much more likely to stick with it and go further and work harder. And the thing is, if you're really, really good at Python because you got really excited about it and then you apply to a Ruby job, I'm way more likely to accept you than someone that just has like a surface level of exposure to it. Like I'm looking for depth of engagement with something because almost all those skills will transfer directly, right? You'll pick those things up so quickly. So follow your interests, like lean into what you're excited about because that's going to get you so much further than just, you know, I, I heard Postgres is cool today, so I'm going to go try that, right? How about when you like hit a block, you know, something that you're excited about, you're learning about it, but then, you know, the, the real learning happens when you're stuck or you have to do something hard. Like what's your advice there? Yeah. You got to keep pushing, right? Um, a lot of the most interesting learnings I've ever had throughout my entire career have come in that like last 5% of finishing a project. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but like, well, a good example is like we were having scaling issues at uh, Reddit around um, Black Friday and like trying to sell stuff on, on Black Friday. And all of a sudden, all the servers were on fire, everything was going awry. And, and like, I learned a ton about AWS that day because I had this like need to go and fix all that stuff, right? And it's like that last five, 10% of like really getting a product out or really getting it right where all that learning happens. It's really easy to start a thousand projects and get them to sixty percent, um, which is the fun part, right? You're like you're really excited about it, and then you get something, and you get to, like, and then you get like a block somewhere. It's like, oh, I don't understand why these things don't work together, and like that kind of not fun seeming part of it can really yield a lot of insight when you have to like dig into is like why is this not working with this, and so again, going back to like that finite resource of of interest. Um, you do have to expend a bit more in those kind of cases, but I guess my advice here is like follow through on the projects that you start because it's really towards the end on the the back end of those where I think you're going to get a lot of interest in like learnings and, and you're going to get more things to be excited about. 
yeah, I think that maybe we're coming at it from a different perspective, but that ends up being my issue with a lot of the frameworks because they're like there to help you get started. And you're like, wow, I'm so, f you know, I'm getting so much done so quickly. And I'm like 60% done in like a day. But then <laughs> that last, you know, 10, 20, 30% ends up being okay. These tools don't work together. How do they? Yeah. And then you really have to dig into how they work versus like if you would have just kind of written, you know, some of those you would probably learn more. And, but yeah, anyways. Yeah, I mean you're 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 definitely not wrong, right? Um, particularly like, especially when we're talking about frameworks, like it kind of gives you like a it's like a coloring book, right? And they give you like here's a coloring book and here's all a bunch of nice colors, and like as long as you're coloring within the lines, frameworks are awesome because they really help you get from point A to point B. And the prime example of that I think is Ruby on Rails, right? If if you are coloring within the lines of, of Ruby on Rails, I don't think there's a faster thing to write code in. And I don't think that's super controversial to say. I, I'm not a Rubyist, by the way. And I, I've written very little Rails in my life, and I think that's good for everybody involved. But like someone that's like a pro at Ruby on Rails, and that that is you know quote unquote coloring in the lines, like doing the stuff that Rails is really good at, flies right. They can just churn out stuff at an amazing rate. The moment that you have to fight Rails or fight whatever, and this isn't specific to Rails, but the, the moment you have to fight your framework to get done what you want to get done. It's the worst. It, it then goes from being something that helps you to being something that slows you down dramatically. And there's other costs like performance and overhead and you know the cost of running your servers. For, I'd say for most companies, it's usually negligible until you're at massive scales, like you know GitHub and, and their you know Rails problems from time to time. But if you're at GitHub size and you get bought by billions for billions of dollars by Microsoft, you probably don't care, right? You probably you did okay, right? So that I don't know. That's my feeling around for obviously I, I teach react I still like react I use react all the time um, and that's because generally I know when I'm going to be coloring within the lines on react and when I know I'm not going to be I use something else sure yeah I've definitely experienced that productivity of like pulling in pretty mature gems and and rails and just kind of like wow I have a full app I think Laravel ecosystem is the same. similar and pretty Django, mature and, Python yeah. So, yeah. All right. Uh, unless you want to start worrying about frameworks for a little <laughs> while, we, we can move on. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear your perspective on teaching. Like, how did you get into teaching and, like, maybe why? Sure. I, like, honestly, I think if, it, if money was no longer an issue, I think I'd be a teacher. I really like it. Um, I like the process of taking a concept that I know and then breaking it down into smaller pieces in terms that I can explain to someone that doesn't understand the same thing that I do. Because it really forces you for, to, into introspection. It forces you to look at concepts that you, you can intuit what they're doing and you have you know, functional experience of like, this is, if I do this, you know, ritual, then this thing comes out the other end, right? But when you're explaining it to someone and you you start thinking about it like, well, what questions is this person going to ask me? And then it forces you to take that knowledge and pull back all the layers of knowledge that you have and in, in into a space where you can explain it in plain terms without jargon, without any assumptions. I have found that from time and time and time again, when I do that, when I go through this process of breaking things down and, and getting ready to teach them, I understand it a hundred times better at the end. So I enjoy it, and it also 
like yields way better and deeper understanding for myself. Like the perfect example of that is the containers course that I teach on front end masters. I was using them all over the place at Microsoft. And I was like, this, this stuff is really cool, but I actually don't really know how any of this works, right? I know how to use it extremely well, but I don't know how it actually works. And so that's when I came to you and proposed the class. And I was like, I'm going to build a container by hand, right? And going through that process of setting up my C groups and setting up my, you know, code jail and like all that kind of stuff um, really is like, okay, now I know quite a bit about containers and it really helped me with my job at Microsoft. I think the course does pretty well here at Front of Masters. And a lot of people have told me like that's their favorite course that I've taught. Um, so all of that, like, and I like just seeing people's aha moments. Um, I taught Java when I was in college. I had a professor that really didn't like teaching. And so he kind of just let me teach all of his courses. So like I was teaching CS142 and 235 the first, and I was into CS236, right? So I was not that much further ahead of the kids I was teaching. But like, I remember I loved the day that I got to teach recursion because it's so fun to watch people that had that aha moment of like when they understand, I was like, oh my God, the function calls itself, right? Like that just like light bulb moments, really, really cool. So I don't know, that, that's another reason why I, I like teaching. How did you get that opportunity to be a college student and then start teaching? Java? Man, like I feel like, like did he see something in you or I don't know. I don't know if it was either that or the guy was just profoundly lazy. And it could be both, right? Um I just feel like a lot of my life I've been like I was talking about my Reddit story, right? Like it was a lot of just Brian was in the right place in the right time. I mean, that's another piece of advice that I give people frequently is that luck is just opportunity meets preparation, right? And you can say for sure that I had a lot of opportunity, one, just because of the demographic of person that I am and the, you know, the, the people that I was brought up with and all that kind of stuff. But I've also worked to be in situations where like, I'll be somewhere like I was talking to this professor and, and asking about what it takes to be a TA. And he's just like, do you want to be a TA from my classes? And I was like, well, yeah, obviously I would like to do that. So trying to get myself into weird situations and then just being prepared to say like, Hey, I am actually ready to do this thing. If you're ready to let me do it. Right. So yeah, I was just talking to him one day cause I took his class and I liked the professor and I was asking him, well, what do you look for in TAs? And he's just like, I don't know. Do you want to be one? which was weird. And then I got in there and I was expecting to just like grade papers and like, you know, hold office hours. And he's like, Hey, I actually really don't like teaching these classes. I want to go do research. Here's all of the, my instruction materials. Please don't ask me any questions. Right. He like, he just really wanted to disconnect from his classes. And so I let him. How about your, uh, experience? Uh, well, I was obviously there, but getting to teach at front of masters. I'd be interested in hearing your story and how my, that, my <laughs> how version that, of that? Yeah, your, your version of that. I mean, this is another dumb story that Brian was in the right place at the right time. Right. So, uh, going back a little bit before I actually did meet you, um, I went to my very first conference. I went to Mongo SF for, it was a MongoDB conference. And I was like, this is cool. And I think it's really cool. These guys are speaking I'd like, maybe I'd like to try that. So then I went to FluentConf. This has to be 2013, maybe 2012, 2013. One of those FluentConfs. Fluent's gone, but it was a conference by O'Reilly that was all front end JavaScript kind of conference. It was, I would say at the time, it was the definitive conference for the front end. 
and I applied to do a five-minute talk on Yelman, which is still around. It's like a profit or a project scaffolder. And uh, first of all, uh, that uh, f- those five-minute talks are so much harder than all the other talks. I thought it was like five minutes, easy. Like it can't be that long. Turns out I was very wrong. It's way easier to, t- to talk for 45 minutes than it is to talk for five. Anyway, that was my first talk. I got up there. It's on YouTube, by the way. You can totally Google Brian Holt Yelman Fluent and you'll see me shaking on stage, actually shaking on stage. I, I thought I did terrible, like I was stuttering. And the organizer of the conference, uh, Simon St. Laurent, awesome guy, works at LinkedIn Learning now, I think, um, came up to me afterwards and was like, that was a great talk. You should talk next year. And like that, honestly, that was a pivotal moment for me to say like, maybe I don't want to speak ever again to maybe I should speak again, right? And I've told them that. And I'm thank you, Simon, if you listen to this. Um, so I applied next year. I applied for two different things. And one was a 45-minute talk. One was a 90-minute workshop. And I got accepted for the 90-minute workshop where I got accepted to speak on comparing JavaScript frameworks. So I, I wrote the same app in Ember, in Angular, and in Backbone. And I think you were there for at least part of it, right? And so I was in the speaker's lounge kind of decompressing afterwards, and then we just had a chat, and he's like, do you want to, have you heard of this front of master's thing? I had at the time, because I, I had seen that, uh, I think Crockford was one of the original speakers, and Mishko and some of those guys. I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, who's who of the industry at the time? I was like, well, he's, he's asked me to speak at the, this place where they had spoken. And I was like, probably a pretty good association. And plus, we had a good chat in the speaker's lounge. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come speak. And so I gave that same workshop, which I'm going to argue is not a great workshop. <laughs> but I did it, and I added React to that as well. Um, and it was like to do MVC, right? Yeah, it was to do MVC. Yeah. And I got a lot of crap, particularly from the from Ember people, saying, like, this is not how Ember shines. And my point to them is, like, if it sucks to set up your framework, then your framework kind of sucks a little, which... Ember has its own space in the industry. I'm not. I'm not going to take that away from them. It's just not my favorite, right? Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was. It was. I don't know. I worked hard on it. It wasn't bad, um, but I've certainly improved dramatically since then. I think, or maybe I still suck. I don't know. So, <laughs> you tell me. There are people out there that like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm. I'm not saying. You know. Possibly. This, yeah. <laughs> Not saying that I no, I'm just kidding. Obviously, <laughs> Mark I thinks I suck. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I, I mean, on that note, your your most popular series is complete intro to web dev. That was fun. You did that with Nina. Yep, from Reddit, and that was you know really well received. That was really fun. And then yeah, it took um, obviously the React mantle on the platform, and I think yeah, I mean. I guess we're both responsible for, in some ways, to you know, teaching probably like over a hundred thousand, you know, React devs, um, React, uh, and you know, we're on like version eight of that course, right? Yeah, so, we should probably schedule version nine sometime in the future here. Yeah, with all the like React server component stuff yeah, going on. And, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it'd be interesting, I guess, hearing your perspective. I feel like we're both. In a lot of ways, we're like responsible <laughs> for you know helping all these devs get up to speed on the 
uh, tool, but I also feel like we're sort of outsiders in a way. It's kind of strange how that is, but I'd be interested to hear like your perspective on kind of like React's history, um, the the evolutions from you know like Brian Holt's <laughs> history, like, of, history React. of React. For, you know, I mean, there's a great documentary out there if sure. you haven't seen it. That's the official story, but I, I kind of want to hear the unofficial. Yeah, like story. The, the the bastard child's version of it. <laughs> <laughs> the outsider looking in is like, oh, look at all the people in there. Um, First, your history, and then maybe like sure, React yeah. as a project. So my history with React is I was I was an Angular one person, so Angular JS, right before they went to Angular two. That's what I was writing. Um, I wrote a decent amount of Backbone as well, some no- knockout here and there, but generally pretty strong on the ang- Angular train. Um, I was at Reddit. I had just rewritten most of our shopping cart experience because we had like a marketplace at the time. In Angular, it was working fine uh, for me because I, I knew Angular quite well, um, but I was the only person that would touch the app because none of the other developers, who were mostly Python developers, just were interested in learning it, uh, which was a bit of a problem for me. But I had we had hired a developer, and he came in. And he's like, hey, check out this React thing. I think it's going to be really interesting to you. So I watched uh, Pete Hunt's uh, like announcement talk on it, um, and I was like, "This is like I had the thought of like we finally got the JavaScript out of the HTML. I am not putting the HTML back into the JavaScript. That just doesn't make any sense to me." And so I ended up writing an app, and I did it w- without JSX. Um, and I was like, "Okay, I'm starting to understand this." And I really, the part that I found hard about Angular JS one is like there was a lot of black magic, right? You plugged like some inputs into something and then magic happened and then out the other side came what you wanted. And that worked for people that's like, if you understand the pipes and how the pipes fit together, it's awesome, right? It's like the Rails thing, right? If you don't understand the black magic, it is a black box that you cannot pull apart. And I I did not like that. I didn't want to have to teach everyone coming in because we were hiring like crazy. So what I liked about React is like, you see the whole thing. It's very explicit and it's verbose, and it's long, but you can see this goes here, and then it goes here, and then it goes here, and then it goes here, and then out comes this. And I loved that part of it. When I was going through and I was explaining to, to my uh, my friend Eric Fish, who was the uh, back-end dev, dev that I was working with. That was kind stuff. of the class-based, like... Before that, yeah, the create class, or, right? Yeah, create class. Yeah. yeah, so it was before like the ES6 classes, because even back then, this was before 2015, so classes weren't even out yet, right? I mean, RIP, that was actually my favorite version of React. <laughs> um, so I was, I was showing it to one of our backend developers, and he's like, I get this. Like, I can, I can write this. And like, that's when I kind of realized, like, okay, there's, there's something special here. And so I, I took a weekend, uh, as I did at the time, and I rewrote our shopping cart experience totally in React, got in that uh, week, you know, sent it through its QA paces, and then I launched it, and then I went on vacation for like, 10 days, I was on a cruise, right? And our uh, app broke in the middle of the time because I launched new code and you know stuff breaks and we were moving fast and breaking things. And my the backend developer was able to fix it without even get, getting a hold of me. And I was like, all right, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. I really like this. And so that's when I really went full in. I was like, okay, I think this React thing has some staying power. And so, yeah, ended up rewriting a lot of React. I was... Uh, one of the fr- I, I, we launched uh, Reacts or uh, Reddit's first React in 2014, and we were probably comp- 
big company number like five or six on that list of big companies that had launched React. Um, Airbnb was like right around the same time as us as well. Um, so I, I helped introduce it on Reddit proper. Um, you know, I, I was a big part of Reddit going all in on React, which was pretty cool. Um, so, I mean, at the time I, I made, you know, friends and inroads with a bunch of the React core team. I, you know, I even interviewed once to work there on the React core team. Um, and like, I thought about doing that, but I, partially as I, like, I wasn't accepted, but I could have reapplied. But at, the, at that point I was like, you know what? I actually think I like working on the product more than I like working on the, the, the core framework. So I kind of gave up that dream. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my first story and in interactions with, with, uh, with React. As far as like the history, it's, uh, I think a lot of people saw what I saw as like, this is very obvious and they, they got a lot of things right. I think the one-way data flow was probably one of the biggest key cont contributions. And the insight that the uh, model view controller thing from the back end was, was not a good idea on the front end. And they were much better off modeling it after a web page, right? Like a PHP web page. There's more PHP than model view controller in React, and that's a good thing. I think a lot of people were turned off by JSX at first, myself included. But once you realize that you're writing code to mimic HTML, it would be easier to just write HTML. Then you're like, oh, okay, I get that. Like this, this makes sense, right? Um, so that, I think that's where we started seeing it to take off. Seeing it start to take off. Um, there was that whole thing about the license forever. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Where people are like, you know, Facebook re re reserves the right to revoke the ability to use this if you attack Facebook and blah, blah, blah. And that was the dumbest argument. Like, we have some dumb arguments, but uh, front-end developers being armchair lawyers is about the dumbest argument that I've I've been a part of. And I've been a part of some pretty dumb... I've been in, in tabs versus spaces arguments before, so... Um, yeah, that almost killed them for a while, and then I think they eventually relicenses MIT or something like that. Um, so it's been fun to watch it grow over the years. I, I, I mentioned that I liked the Create class. It, create class was so easy. It was the very first API for writing React um, because you didn't have to teach um, context. You didn't have to tr teach classes. There was so much. You didn't have to teach hooks. Hooks are their own thing to teach. Um, it just kind of worked the way you expected to, and we kind of got away from it. I, I'm not going to argue that probably was the right choice, but you know, me, old man Brian, on my porch, I'm going to yell at all the kids that, like, back in my day, we had create class and it worked, right? Um, but I think over the years, the, it's been a lot of interesting uh, evolutions there. Because they went from create class, which had the life cycle hooks, right? Methods, or, yeah. Methods, sorry, yeah. I just can't, can't call them hooks. Cannot. Uh, and then we went to class actual classes yep. with ES6 and we, then we had to like bind the method context which is just a necessity of how ES6 classes work so it's it's understandable why they did it it's just sad because it teaching that to new developers it's just one more thing that the poor you know developers have to understand before that anything makes sense uh, and then we went to hooks right so you didn't have the dot bind and create class and nope. then you moved to Actual classes, and you had to do the dot bind. And exactly. Got it. And then they launched hooks to. Yeah, there was that surprise launch at React. I think it was the very first React Conf, which I, I didn't actually end up going to. Uh, and they had this like surprise, like 
beta group um, where uh, it was a secret Facebook group where they invited only like the you know biggest influencers up. And I were you part of that? I wasn't initially. Mm. And eventually I started hearing so much about it. I was like, you know what? I'm fine waiting for this because whatever they're going to launch is going to be broken as hell. No one's going to get it. And they're like, I'll just figure it out then. But eventually, like Sarah Drasner, we're talking about Sarah again. Sarah Drasner, the message is like, you, you really should put Brian in this beta. And so they did. I actually had to make another Facebook account because I don't have one uh, so that I could join this and you know learn about hooks in this secret group. And I was like, oh, wow, this is actually really intuitive it demos so well right you show someone like the magic the first time it's like all you say is use state and then you call set state and that's it and you never have to have like life cycle methods ever again that part was like wow this is actually really compelling right this is really cool um and then i've kind of realized over the years that like i kind of don't like them i kind of miss classes because there's some uh unintuitiveness of like how they can interact like don't put them in if statements and don't put them in for loops and there's a bunch of stuff that just catch new developers that i I don't like that i don't like teaching that but that's kind of going back to the magic of angular js that you were just talking about that you didn't like exactly whereas uh you know in the create class it was like very explicit where these um what, what did we call them state Oh yeah, like the life cycle life cycle methods. Methods, yeah, yeah, those methods. Yeah, where this is exactly how the render happens. Whereas with hooks, it's a little bit more magic, right? There's some more magic to it. I mean, the, the thing that classes didn't have at all was composability, and you had to do these like uh, I'm I'm have forgotten the term, and I'm glad I've forgotten the term. I'm glad I'm not wasting brain space on that anymore. But like these like composable parent components that then you like pass in like these like contexts to them. It was a mess, right? It was any sort of composability was a mess and hooks compose super well, right? It's very easy to say like, I'm going to make this like tiny bit of business logic and I'm going to encapsulate it into a hook and then I can just use that anywhere that I need to. That composability aspect to it is magical. The trade-off there is that we got more magic, like more um, black box, black boxness to this kind of uh, process, which it's, it's a trade-off, right? And I acknowledge that like they made the trade-off and it's probably not the one that I've chosen, but it's, it's a valid one. Yeah, definitely in the intermediate React like or the bottom of the React learning path on front of Masters, like React performance, it's like all about that magic of like, when does this thing actually render? And when do I use use memo? And it's, it's definitely like, if you want to become a React expert. You got to go there. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so how about just teaching in general? Like, what is your advice to people who want to start teaching? That's a good question. I think the most important part of being a teacher is being able to, well, first of all, is recognizing that initially you're not good at it. And not just in the sense of like, um, you're unskilled, like you haven't practiced or anything like that. I also do mean that. But like, let's say I ask you to teach someone, I don't know, like pretend that they don't know how to do like basic math and I'm asking you to teach them how to do math, right? And your first thing is like, okay, well, we're going to do two plus two and they're going to be like, well, what's plus, right? And so like learning to identify those like points of friction that you know a student's going to go on is it's a real skill to be able to actually 
identify that and pull back that knowledge like the, of things that you take for granted. Because as soon as you learn something and then some time goes past, you forgot what it's like to learn that. You forgot what was hard. You forgot what terms you had to learn. You forgot like the practice that was helpful to you. You forget the struggle. You forget how frustrating it can be. And like that is to me what makes an awesome teacher is someone that's going to anticipate a bunch of those things and build their you know, structure and curriculum and their planning around how do I with empathy go through with someone that I already I recognize I'm gonna go teach a bunch of people tomorrow like how to do products management. I, I can't pull back all of the knowledge. I have to go in there with a, a large level of humility that I'm going to ask questions like, you said this, what does this actually mean, right? If I'm lucky, people will ask me those questions. If I'm unlucky, they'll just like let it sail by, right? So being able to basically unlearn something and relearn something over and over again so you can be able to speak to these people in terms that they're going to understand that you are, so many teachers I've seen get up there and like, basically stroke their ego of like, look what I know and look what you don't know. And I was like, man, like you're a terrible teacher if you do that. Like someone that's actually able to go in there and say like, I'm going to put myself in your shoes and it's it's important that you get it and not that I feel good about myself. Because if you walk out of there and they don't get it and you still get it, you, you failed, right? You're a bad teacher or you had a, at least a bad teaching experience. Um, yeah, like taking on that weight of like, I'm going to teach this to you, and if I can't get you to understand this, then it's my fault, not yours, right? Because so many te people get in there and they're like feeling really dumb and they're feeling really self-conscious about like, I'm trying to learn these things and this teacher is explaining to me, he's like, don't you get this? Aren't like, And that's such a frustrating experience. And like being the kind of teacher that goes in there is like, look, we're going to struggle through this together. Like I'm going to struggle to teach you and you're going to struggle to get it, but we're going to struggle and get there together. That's the kind of teacher I want to be around. And where might they practice this? Because you're talking about, you know, kind of a little bit high level, but like, where would you recommend somebody getting started? They're like, hey, I want to teach. What would you say? Yeah. Where to start? That That's a great question. So for me, the thing that I, I, I kind of did two when I was like really getting started teaching. One of them is I found the local uh, girl develop it in Salt Lake City. And I was like, hey, I, I'm preparing this course. Can I just come teach it for your students, right? So so finding some sort of like local user group. I've heard people doing like brown bag lunches at work as well. That was the other one I was going to mention. Um, or yeah, user groups are yeah, great. Or uh, even like starting a YouTube channel. That, that is a... The answer is yes, right? That's, that certainly works. Like, I mean, I think the Primogen is the, the prime example of that. It's a, I think it's a different skill set. Um, learning how to interact with that kind of like live streaming audience, it's, I, I'm not good at it, right? Well, that's uh, Twitch. Whereas YouTube, you can kind of polish your, or, yeah, your or, lessons or, yeah. That you definitely, and you get into like things like video editing and like um, all that kind of stuff. And like, that's a big barrier to entry, particularly for something where you have to like learn multiple things to get by. I'm not going to suggest it as the first thing that I would reach to, but if like you're pumped about it and you want to do it, the, kind of the same thing, like lean into your interests. Um, that would have been hard for me to do up front. Yeah, whereas if you go to a conference or local user group, you can kind of just show up and teach, right? Exactly, right. So um, local user groups, local resource groups like uh, uh, Women Who Code is another good one. Or um, And then like for me, I, I taught a couple of workshops at Reddit. I was like, hey, I'm going to go teach this. You all can show up in this conference room at this time, but I'm going to go teach. 
um, people like learning things. People like an excuse to not have to work for a little bit. So um, if you have access to something like that, that's another great place to learn how to teach. Cool. So let's like transition into more of your current career, I guess. Before, as a bridge to that, uh, you know, you went from Reddit to Microsoft to wait. Uh, yeah, Netflix. After. Sorry, Reddit to Netflix to Microsoft to Stripe. Like, what do people see in you? That like, why do you, <laughs> why are people hiring you? <laughs> uh, I guess that's a stupid white guy failing up. I think is the answer to your question. No, um, I mean it might be actually. You know what? I'm gonna, you uh, can talk. <laughs> you know, you can talk to like each one a little bit individually. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've had kind of an interesting career because I've kind of been all over the map. Like my very first uh, job at KSL, I was a straight up PHP developer. I wrote zero front end code. I was just writing, slinging PHP all day and I, I liked it. I had no intention of ever leaving it. PHP is a great language, by the way. It's very productive. Um, I went from there and this is another, just Brian being the right, right place, right time is like, I went and interviewed a needle and I, I swear to God, I thought my title on that first day, I, I thought it was going to be junior backend developer. And I walked in and they made me business cards and my title was senior front-end developer, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I panic learned all of the uh, you know, JavaScript I could in a short amount of time. I ended up really liking it. I liked the visceral appeal of like, I change something, I see something, right? Whereas like with your, you know, messing with APIs and stuff like that, it's a little less visceral. Uh, got good at that. And then I told you how I got from Needle to, to Reddit. Um, when I went from Reddit to Netflix, um, I was just, we had just moved to San Francisco. Reddit was really crazy at the time. Like there was just lots of drama, lots of turnover. And Netflix just called me on the right day, right time. And I was already in the Bay. So I was like, yeah, sure. You know, Netflix sounds like a really cool place to work. And so I ended up going there. That's where I met you know, a bunch of your instructors right now. That's where I met like Jem Young and Ryan Burgess, who's also coming up. They're awesome people that I worked with. We did Front and Happy Hour together as well. Um, and the Primogen as well, right? Yeah, so I met I met Primogen as well. Yeah, that's right. Me and uh, Michael worked together at. Uh, he, I was on uh, UI Web, and he was like on UI Core, right? So definitely worked with him quite a bit. He was a great coworker. Um, so I was there for a couple of years. Um, that commute was killer. Uh, so I ended up going to uh, LinkedIn, uh, which was Microsoft owned at the time. Um, I could ride my bike to work, which was great. Um, and you know, I was I was working on Lynda.com and, and uh, LinkedIn Learning. So one of the competitors to Front and Master actually had to get it written into my contract. So in my Microsoft contract, it says Brian can teach at Front and Masters, right? Which is pretty funny. They kept trying to get me to teach for Linda, and I was like, I'm not going to do it. No way. Uh, th- you know, there's lots of good stuff and good teachers on there, but uh, I just, I like, obviously, I like being here, right? Um, I wasn't there for super long. That's when Sarah Drasner reached out to me and said, uh, We're just engagement baiting her, like, throughout this podcast, beginning, middle. <laughs> she's, I mean, obviously, she's All a right, huge yeah. part of my career, right? Yeah. Um, She's the one that pulled me over to uh, to Microsoft to actually do developer relations because I'd been speaking so much and teaching, and they're like, "We, you know, maybe you want to go try doing that professionally." So I did that for, you know, two years, uh, almost two years. Um, so it's too much travel. Uh, I took like over a hundred flights as a developer relations uh, uh, employee. 
And I went to like 30 countries. It was awesome. I'm very happy I did it, and I'm very happy to never do it again. Um, and that's when I saw a job posting for product manager. They call it program manager, but it was a product manager on the Visual Studio Code team. And I was sick of traveling. And then the other thing I was kind of sick of doing is I'd get all this feedback from the community. It was like, hey, this part of Azure is like not fun, or this part of VS Code is not cool. And I'd take that back to the team. And they were so busy with other things that they never really got to my feedback. And I got kind of sick of doing that. I was like, I'm going to go make them do it. And so I took this job interview with uh, the VS Code team. Not, I had no idea that I was like, you're going to be a product manager. Like That's not something I ever really thought in my head. I was just like, I get to go work on VS Code, and that's really exciting, right? And so that's kind of how I accidentally became a PM. It's just, you know, right time, right place kind of thing. Uh, ended up loving it. I didn't think I was going to leave that job. I really enjoyed my team. I enjoyed my boss. Um, enjoyed my entire organization. Working at VS Code is a super cool product. Um, and then that's when one of the women that I worked with at uh, Microsoft, she had gone to Stripe sometime earlier. Uh, Suze Hinton, one of my absolute favorites. She was also really big on Twitch for a while. I'm still bugging her to try and get on front of Masters. I think she'd be a fantastic instructor. instructor. Um, so she's like, hey, do you want to come work on developer experience at the company known for developer experience at Stripe? And I was like, well, when you put it that way, kind of, yeah. And so that's when I ended up uh, popping over to Stripe. I, again, never thought I would leave Microsoft. Uh, had a great time there. So the transition t- from developer to product manager was because, well, it really was a DevRel position to product manager because yep. you were getting feedback from the developer community and then you were like, hey, I want this to actually be built. I want to fix it. And so then I could, as a product manager, you're really prioritizing. Yeah, control the roadmap, right? The, the product yeah. based on that feedback. And so your frustration of <laughs> DevRel, I guess, led you to product manager. A huge part of it, yeah. Hmm. It was be- between like that frustration and just being really excited to work on VS Code, right? It's a yeah. product that I used and loved for such a long time. And I, when I got the opportunity to actually be the person working on it with you know with the team, um, yeah, I got excited about it. And that's what you're doing to this day, right? So you went to Stripe and you're you were prioritizing the roadmap and leading developers there. And then Yeah. Back yeah. in January, uh I ended up going to Snowflake, which is where I am now. Um and I'm a, I'm a product manager there on a product called Streamlit, which is a data visualization library that that uh, Snowflake owns. Um and that was just like uh, at Stripe, I was working on like a lot of abstract pro- products. Like um, I worked on SDKs, I worked on a VS Code extension, a CLI, and it kind of got me away from working on product, which I really enjoyed doing. I also really enjoyed what I did at Stripe. Um, but when they came in, it was like, "Hey, do you want to work on this like really cool ability to like for, to allow data scientists that make these really cool apps for their their ability to share these apps and like make really cool." You know, LLM apps, AI apps, um, geospatial apps, um, and it's a product that we give away. Like that, that kind of like value proposition really resonated with me. And I hadn't worked on Python in a while. I was excited to work on that. I hadn't worked on like big data before. That was new for me. Um, so all those things kind of got me excited to work on on Snowflake. And so yeah, I've been there since January. 
It's interesting. I, I feel like a lot of developers get to this point in their career that they're looking at what is the next path forward? Is it maybe technical management? But I, I don't feel like I see a lot of developers going into product management. Could you talk to, about that or like why you might want to do that versus sure. like going into technical management, right? Yeah, it's there's the, the path that I see more people go into. Totally. I mean, the, that path tends to come for you. Like if you are a, a good engineer that's responsible, they tend to just make you a manager eventually, right? right? <laughs> yeah, unless you say no, like the primogen was just like, you no, have to I, fight I, it. I, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be a developer forever, right? Yep, which is like those kind of individual contributors are super valuable. And it's good for people to recognize like this is what actually what I want to do because like I said, like if you don't fight it, it comes for you. And like I had no problem becoming a manager. I was kind of thinking that's what I wanted to do too. And I, I didn't set out to become a uh, product manager. I just kind of just happened to situations where it, it happened to me. Um, so yeah, let me wax uh, poetic a little bit of like why you might want to be a product manager and why you might not want to be a product manager. I, parts of my job that I really enjoyed, particularly at Reddit where I had a lot of control, I really enjoyed the strategy, right? I enjoyed setting, I was like, hey, we're, we care about these metrics. We care about this demographic of people, and we're going to build these sort of things to take care of people. It's very user centric. It's very user based. So you're, you're thinking, like, as a user, I want to be able to do these things. And you're going out and you're interviewing and you're looking at the metrics and you're trying to find out, like, where's friction? How can I make this better? I actually had an, a really awesome experience when I was at Netflix. We were doing a UX study and I was watching someone use what I built. And I had this like really good idea. I was like, I'm positive that this is how they're going to use this app. And then they didn't. And then they didn't again and again and again. It was like four people in a row proved me just wildly wrong. And I was like, that's so cool, right? That's so intoxicating to have this like, I'm like, like learning moment. Where I was like, oh my God, I was so wrong when I was so convinced that I was right. And that kind of like learning like moment and being wrong was like really, really cool for me. Uh, so it sounds like a really fun way to learn it. I learned it through technical support and like fixing people's computers. You're the victim old, of it. <laughs> yeah, the old lady like being like, you know, why does the Microsoft Word cursor blink in a certain way? It's like, that, that's yeah. not me, ma'am, but uh, I'll see what I can do in the settings to see if I can make it blink in a different way. It's like... <laughs> right, totally. Very frustrating, but... Um, yeah. It's I mean it's cool to be able to like watch those moments and then be able to fix it, right? Right. Like for me it was like helping people sign up for Netflix on TVs, right? And we th we had all these like crazy ideas of like how we thought people should do it and then users were just doing it a totally different way. Like they just wanted it's like just let me do it on my phone. It's like, "Oh, duh. Why are we making this like crazy flow on here when you just want to do it on your phone?" right? Stuff like that. And so that was a big moment when I realized like maybe this product management thing is actually going to fit for me really well because I really enjoy these like like research and strategy and like setting the direction and helping kind of entire teams figure out what to build. Like I used to do that at Reddit, but it was like a very small part of my job. And now as a product manager, that's all my job is like doing strategy and helping develop or helping our team figure out what are we going to build. Yeah, it takes like a empathy, a level of empathy with oh, the I user, empathy with the developers. 
you'd think like a developer becoming a product manager would be better at the job, right? Because they'd like be able to empathize like how hard it is to build certain things, prioritize whatever. Yeah. I, I generally like working on, and you've seen my entire career, I've worked on developer-oriented tools because generally I get to solve my own problems, right? If I have a problem with VS Code, I just get to go fix it. And like I'm very much in that headspace of like, how do I fix these kind of things? I'm not saying that I couldn't go be like a product manager on like, I don't know, like Pinterest or something like that. I'm not a, that maybe that target demographic, but like the stuff, I, I do like working on things that affect me. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah, when I think about front of masters, I think about that kind of early career where I was just like soaking up and learning as much as I could from, you know, all of these disparate sources. And I just kind of wanted it all to be right there because empathizing with that kind of like a couple years in, you know what you need to learn. Mm -hmm. You know enough that you know what you need to learn, but there's, yeah, all this disparate knowledge throughout the internet. And it's like, how do you, where do I go? And so that that's my like user story is like that kind of inflection point in my career. How do I create better that yeah material for that yeah kind of whatever advanced beginner to mid level engineer that wants to like really get to senior or whatever. So yeah, like if if you there, there's a book that I read recently called uh, Think Again by Adam Grant, and it's about the this kind of person that enjoys being wrong and re and and relearning things and like they enjoy being wrong because it means that they're improving and they're getting better and they're learning new things and like if if that resonates it strongly resonates with me i i have the mantra that i'm an idiot and i i truly believe that because i'm learning stuff all the time and it's super fun uh, um so if that resonates with you product management is pretty cool now let me let me tell you the reasons why you might not want to be a product manager it is meetings it is the emails and it is like your superpower as a product manager is writing and if you don't like to write that's most of your job and it's most of your ability to affect change in an organization so i'm not saying you need to be like the best you know poetic writer or anything like that but having strong technical writing skills will is critical yeah i feel like if you're at a larger company especially if they're remote like then the only way to communicate really is, is writing, writing. It's it's even for a smaller company like your ability to create a product specification that then informs the developers, the designers, and all that kind of stuff like to and like how they should align to move forward together, or like how to create like a strategy doc that aligns you know your team of ten. Like all of those things become really really critical. So if you don't want to write, this is a hard job to do. Yeah, that's true. I, I feel like that's true with any leadership position. Totally in it, general, especially in tech, it's like. I remember, you know, one of my formative experiences was just getting a blog, you know, getting a website and writing hundreds of articles about, you know, some things were technical, some things were philosophical. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. In a lot of ways, that's what I do today, right? With yeah. with uh, running front of masters is writing, you know, marketing emails or writing to my team or writing, you know, to uh, the teachers or whatever. Yep. Just writing, 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 and I. Yeah, I'd say that's like the biggest yielding skill in, you know, really in tech is, or, you know, I, I, in I this would agree tech, with that. whatever technical world that we live in is like the, the more you're effective at communicating, 
via text. The more power you have. And you can't just like throw that into chat GPT at, at the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we, we probably will get there in which case I won't have a job. Right. Yeah, but I'll be front of master's janitor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll hold you to that in the All future. Right. Right? Deal. Deal. Sold. Um, yeah. So I think we've covered a lot of ground, uh, everything from early career to teaching to, you know, your current career. Um, I think looking forward, do you have anything on your horizon as far as like, you know, career wise, is there something you're really excited about? And uh, then, or you could say personal wise. Yeah, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, for me, so I'm, I'm halfway through my MBA at the moment. I'm going to Seattle university to do like an executive leadership, um, masters of business. So, that's got me pretty jazzed about like working more with people and maybe doing some more like, like group product manager kind of stuff, like where you're like, you're even more setting strategy and less kind of dictating the product. Um, that has me excited. They have me reading like a lot of like business books and like, that's been really interesting. Another one that's been, that was how long have you been at that? About a year. Yeah. And I have about a year left. Hmm. Um, one of the books on that, top of having a kid and and teaching do, for teaching fun and, and, and having a full time job. Yeah, like job. A, I am a glutton for punishment. Yeah. No, I find a way to to fit it all in. I, I specifically chose that program because it fit into my life fairly well. And this uh, aspect of you're not afraid to work hard as long as you're learning. I feel like is kind of always been there with your career. Definitely, even today, right? Because you could work a little bit less hard, but you're like excited about learning in all these different areas so you're willing to work hard it seems like yeah i'm willing to put in the hours and, and i also just have an awesome supportive wife that enables me to do these kind of things um yeah so one of the one of the learnings that i've really taken away from my mba program that i think would have helped for a lot of people in tech and people interested in engineering or product management or engineering uh management or anything like that there's a book called thinking in systems um I can't remember who the author is, and I think it's you know fairly. I don't think it's too new. Um, it's about how to solve intractable problems, like these really, really large, gross, hairy problems, and how to break them and like view them in systems. Like, if I affect this, this affects this, which affects this, and like how to diagram out these like big hairy problems, or even just like smaller problems that you you can kind of close together as a tight system. That like really like was a paradigm shift for me of like oh my god like oh, everything is a system right, um, so like I'm I'm excited for more insights about that for my MBA program. I think that applies to really whether you're wherever you are as a developer to manager to really just to life right. I think of yeah, what systems am I a part of? How can I affect those systems in a bigger way? Yeah, and like it gives you the vocabulary to kind of describe that because like what you're talking about is like an intervention, right? You you have like okay, if I have this system which affects this, but like maybe I can make a detour over here and do this and this and this, and then we skip all the bad effects, right? Like then what new effects are you creating, right? Like and it's I don't know. But that's where promotions come from. Like you know, going from junior to mid level or mid level to senior or senior to manager. It's zooming or out, yeah. It's zooming out and seeing like okay, what. How can I make a bigger impact here? Yeah, they call that getting on the balcony, right? As opposed to like being on the dance floor. So if you're on the balcony, then you're like you're looking at the entire system, and then if you're on the dance floor, you can't see all the system, but you're you know affecting change there, right? Um, again, 
really cool book. Definitely suggest everyone should read it because um, you, you're going to see a lot of your life differently through that kind of lens. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, thinking about running in front of the masters, I think of everything as a series of systems, right? Like how do how, the teachers, the customers, the team, like how do they like all fit together and move in the same direction if something's not moving quite correctly like yeah. how but i'm at a higher level you know obviously like designing those systems but right even when i was a part of it as a developer it's like how do i it's like we're spending seven hours in qa on this one problem like how do i create like a library that solves this problem that we're constantly having or whatever and right then, and then being promoted to senior lead of um really really quickly at a very young age i think that that apply yeah totally absolutely um, how about, uh, so we talked about learning, um, how about like, do you have any crazy bucket list items that you're going to check off, like travel or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Something yeah. bigger or, um, traveling got a lot harder since I got a, a kid now, Nikki and I, like Nikki and I have been to like 50 countries. Wow. So you've already kind of done yeah. what most people's <laughs> bucket list. You've already yeah, checked I'm, out all of us. I'm a million mile, million miler now. I've flown over a million miles. Oh. Um, so I think one of them definitely is like, I have a, a shorter list of countries that I haven't been to. Um, like I haven't been to Japan. That's, that's probably the top of the bucket list. I just went to Belgium, which is really close to the top. Belgium was awesome. Um, but particularly, like, I want to go to, you know, Japan experience all that. And then uh, Japan is famous for having great powder for snowboarding. So yeah, I was just going to say, because you have this new hobby that you kind of picked back up with snowboarding. Yeah. I, I was thinking you're definitely going to do something with snowboarding. For sure. And, like, I live pretty close to Whistler. And, like, I'm, I grew up in Utah. So I'm kind of biased that I think Utah sure. has, has great uh, snowboarding. But uh, I should go try Whistler. Uh, and then next season, I'm going to try and get more into, like, split boarding which is like where you like what is that you like hike up the hill basically on like these like split snowboards that like split into two and then you can like hike up to the top and then you can snowboard down so it's like a really good workout and then you get like a fun end to it wow i've never heard of that there's ski touring please is, invite me that yeah. sounds amazing yeah so that that's that's my uh I, I scheduled a course for january to go learn how to i have to do you have to do avalanche rescue first right because wow. everyone that's out there has to know how to handle an avalanche and then uh, I'll try a split boarding a little bit, like probably towards January. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, the last kind of thing that we've talked about, I feel like in bits and pieces over the years is, is really like happiness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that plays a huge part in this whole journey from all your career transfers to, you know, <laughs> or career accomplishments to teaching. Um, can you talk to happiness a bit? Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my goal has always been to maximize happiness and like whatever, like whatever that means. And you, you can rephrase happiness as utility if you want to talk about, uh, um, different theories, but basically like, and it's not always just mine, right? I'm not totally just a hedonist where I'm just out for my own pleasure, um, but like when it comes to like teaching, when it comes to like the kind That's of debatable, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, in, inherently, if you're trying to maximize happiness, you're somewhat of a hedonist, right? Like that, that you can't get away from that. Uh, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either. I'm just joking, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, it's fine. Um, yeah, so just trying to make sure that I'm 
helping not only myself, because it makes me happy to help other people as well, right? So lifting up students, mentoring people, um, you know, helping people that I work with, helping my, you know, partners and things like that. Um, it's always been a big part of like what I focus on and what I want to work on and where I apply myself. Um, cause I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, a force for happiness in the world. And I don't know if I always succeed, but it's, it's certainly something that's on the back of my mind of like, if I give up a little of my own happiness here, I'm going to make a lot of people really happy. That's, those are things that I try and do, right? And I try and play the numbers game there. And you can't always do that, right? Like you do have to like, as my, uh, my dad always used to say, you can't draw from an empty well, right? So if, you, if you're out of energy, you can't give anything of yourself because you're out of energy yourself, right? So I try and make sure I make enough time for me and I also think it's good for my son to see like my, his dad is a whole person, right? That, you know, takes care of himself and thinks about himself and also takes care of his wife and then takes care of that. Like, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, everything is my kid and I must give everything to them. I think it's okay for your, your kid to say like, hey, you know, like life is to be happy, right? Like we're, we're here to be happy and we should um, focus not only on ourselves, but also on others. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, thanks for kicking off this podcast and i hope it's the first of many more to come yeah definitely thanks i'm happy to be here all right cheers bye hey before you go don't forget we're new at this so any type of feedback whether it's a like and subscribe or whether it's a comment about what you didn't like about the episode what you do like moving forward uh, we'll be sure to take your feedback into the next one we've got a lot of great ideas for the podcast I'm really excited. These conversations are super fun. So we hope to keep continuing. So uh, yeah, spread word about it. And thanks a lot for listening. Peace.